looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Gordy. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 120 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for what's sure to be an out-of-this-world episode. That's right, we're about to go where no one has gone before. My guest today is Will Wheaton. That's right, Will Wheaton. You loved him in Stand By Me, Star Trek The Next Generation, Toy Soldiers, The Big Bang Theory, Tabletop, The Will Wheaton Project, and a million other things. We have tons of Will Wheaton coming up, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Still Just a Geek, an annotated memoir. Will's going to share tons of great stories with us. Excited to have Will on the show, and that's coming up in just a few minutes. I hope you caught last week's episode. Episode 119 with Roy Schwartz, author of Is Superman Circumcised? The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero. I got so much great feedback on that. Roy really knows his stuff, and his book, Is Superman Circumcised?, really goes deep into the history of Superman and comics in general. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, and you need to nerd out even more after this episode, Episode 119 with Roy Schwartz is awaiting for you. You can imagine I was geeking out a little bit when I got to talk to Will Wheaton. It was so exciting. But, you know, I talked to him about a week or so ago. Lots happened since then in Will Wheaton world. Picard announced that the majority of the Next Generation cast was going to be joining Picard in season three. But Will Wheaton's name was not on that list. We don't discuss it in the interview because it hadn't happened yet. But if you go to willwheaton.net, Will's website where he does all the blogging, Will did write a fan fiction sequence. He wrote a little fan fiction of his own expressing how he would see Picard and Wesley reuniting. So head over to willwheaton.net for that. So interestingly enough, during the interview that I have with Will Wheaton that's coming up in a few minutes, I bring up a story called William F. and Shatner. I brought it up because one, I found it on YouTube. It had been posted 11 years ago on YouTube. It was Will Wheaton performing the story, 23 minutes. I highly recommend it. But then in his book, Still Just a Geek, he has the full text of this story as well. And the construct of the book, Still Just a Geek, which will explain a lot better than I will right now, is that he's basically reflecting on old stories and annotating it as Will Wheaton now, looking back on Will Wheaton then. So yes, he does include the William F. and Shatner story in the new book. So interestingly, like literally two days after I talked to Will, the New York Post ran an article called Will Wheaton Remembers William Shatner Being a Real Jerk on Set. This was by Nikki Gostin, and she mentions that in the book, Still Just a Geek, an Annotated Memoir, Will Wheaton recalls this infamous story about meeting William Shatner and William Shatner being a real jerk to him as if Will Wheaton had just brought it up for the first time in this book. So, of course, it kind of gets spun, like he's just bringing this up to kind of get publicity for the book. But the story itself actually also appeared in Will's first book, 2003's Dancing Barefoot. 
it seems that the person at the New York Post just really didn't understand the book or just was tasked to write a completely bait clicky article. And that worked because a lot of other publications then used this as a source and wrote their own article about it. And William Shatner even chimed in on Twitter saying, I guess, well, Wheaton's got a project coming up if he needs to slam me. But that really wasn't the context at all. Our conversation, Will and I's conversation that you're going to listen to real soon, we actually talk about this story, not having the context that a day later it was going to be used to kind of spin drama. And Will Wheaton goes out of his way to tell some really great stories about William Shatner that occurred after this Star Trek V incident. So anyway, just wanted to kind of mention that. You know, don't believe all the drama you read online. I do want to take a second to thank everyone for supporting the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. And that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor, the Comic Center of Pasadena. We've got the best in comics, graphic novels, games, curios, and just plain stuff. Need a Batman belt buckle? We've got over 75 for you to choose from. That's right. Head on over to the Comic Center of Pasadena. We're open seven days a week. Ready to serve all your comic book and multiverse needs. All right. Well, that's great. So if you want to dive into comic books, check out the Comic Center of Pasadena. Well, before you do that, I think it's time for me to share my conversation I had with Will Wheaton with you. Time to unleash it to the world. Everybody, my conversation with Will Wheaton. Enjoy. My guest today is Will Wheaton. Will, it says here that you were on Star Trek. Uh, That's the one with the ears or the Chewbacca? It is the one with the ears. It predates the one with Chewbacca by about a decade. I'm kidding. What a nightmare that would be, right, to start off. (laughs) I'm totally kidding. (laughs) Everyone, my next guest, author, actor, narrator. He loved him in Stand By Me, Star Trek The Next Generation, Big Bang Theory, and so much more. Author of the book, Still Just a Geek, an annotated memoir, Set Phasers to Fun. Welcome to the show, my guest, Will Wheaton. Hi, Will. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is exciting. I really enjoyed your book, and I know know we want to make sure everyone's aware it's coming out this week. It does. It comes out uh, Tuesday the 12th. You're revisiting your original book, Justin mm-hmm. Geek. Kind of, can you set like this to the, the tone in terms of yeah, why sure. you? Let me just give you a little bit of background and a little bit of context. In 2000, I was one of the first people to kind of be like a celebrity blogger, right? I was one of the earliest people to have a website that I built myself and maintained myself and and did all of the technical work on. At, at that time, it was a notable thing that was a little novel and people kind of paid attention to it. I started writing a blog because I just felt like my whole life, my voice had never been heard. Like whatever anyone ever heard was filtered through publicists or filtered through my mom or uh, like somehow just it was never really me. So I started writing a blog about what I thought about stuff. And I I don't know why, but people paid attention. And after a couple of years, I wrote a book that was sort of about the process of building the website, the experiences I was having as a person who was trying to transition from being an actor into being a writer at a moment in my life where the thing that I was kind of best known for was the 20-something who left Star Trek when he was a kid. And I carried a lot of baggage with me about that. 
What I didn't know at the time is that I was living with undiagnosed mental illness, including post-traumatic stress disorder from childhood neglect and abuse. That manifested itself in a lot of ways that I was completely unaware of until a couple of years ago when I took another look at it. I hadn't looked at Just a Geek in a very, very long time, and I had an opportunity to look at it again and revisit it and talk about what I saw. And if Just a Geek is 28-year-old me kind of looking back on like what 18-year-old me kind of did and thought and wanted to accomplish... Still Just a Geek, which features all of these annotations and then an, and a number of pages of new material, new essays and notable speeches and things like that, is really 48-year-old me looking back on 28-year-old me looking back on 18-year-old me and really kind of recontextualizing where my life is now and really seeing the differences in who I was then and who I was now, how I've changed as a person and how I've changed as a writer. That's what I loved about the book. It was such a, a unique way to self-reflect on yourself and kind of see your own growth through your own writing and be able to, you know, legitimately kind of say, all right, this is where I was then. And then comment on it now. You know, I think there's, there's so much in the society today where people look back on things that were and kind of as if that was like a moment in time that needs to exist forever. It seemed like such a healthy exercise to talk about your own growth and, and reflect on all, all of your experiences again. It was such an enjoyable read. I didn't read it originally, so I'm glad I was able to late to the game, but catch the new version. <laughs> I, I felt a kinship with you with the uh, making your own website because my background before being like a stand-up comic and obviously before being a podcaster was I was a web developer. I In Michigan, we started one of the very first web development companies in the late 90s. Wow. And yeah. I, remember, I remember going into Barnes and Noble and there were two books on HTML and I was a graphic designer and I picked one of the books up and a friend of mine had been getting into the internet. So I started to learn about it, taught myself HTML, yeah. had a program that happened to make GIFs right, or GIFs. Yeah. We can talk GIFs. about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, started a web development company. And so that was, that was kind of cool. So I think it's, uh, I can totally kind of understand where you were in, back then. and It was an interesting yeah. moment of time in the, in, in the early 2000s. Social media didn't exist. It was very time consuming to put pictures online. It was expensive, cost prohibitively expensive to buy a scanner to put things online. And that context is extremely important now. It was a ton of work to do what, what I did back then. And I did it all in Linux too, when Linux was kind of like not great and real difficult to understand. And when you couldn't get your computer to connect to the internet, the, the online help said super helpful things like connect to the internet and you'll find your solution there. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I just remember that it felt a lot back then. It was very similar to someone who owns a classic car. Even if you don't want to be a mechanic, you kind of have to be. You have to understand how things work under the hood because setting it and forgetting it didn't exist back then. It does now. And that's awesome. I love that it exists now. I was I was just looking through Instagram reels this morning, thinking about how different it is and how easy it is for people to creatively express themselves in all sorts of different ways now. And in the early 2000s version of the internet pre-YouTube, really the only way we could express ourselves was just with text. 
Oh yeah. You just gave me a flashback. As I mentioned, I was a designer. So I had one of those full color scanners. Oh wow. $1,800. I remember they send me like a tube. You could replace the, you had to replace the tube. My hand shaking, replacing eighteen. Just to put in perspective for the $1,800 scanner I had in the late nineties, you could walk into office max right now and buy something 50 times better for $39. Yeah. And I mean, and and that, if you adjusted it for inflation, that's about a $4,000 piece of equipment today. Yeah, it was cost prohibitive and really challenging. And that was kind of part of my story. That was part of the Just a Geek story and very much part of the Just a Geek moment. It was really impactful on me because as you read in the book, I had spent my entire life feeling like I had to be an actor. And that's just really not what I wanted to do. It's not where my passion was. I was good at it, but I didn't love it. I barely liked it. And what I really loved was writing and storytelling and doing what I could to be for other people, the person I needed in my life. And that was when all of that was happening, from my perspective, the internet felt so much smaller than than it does now. And I'm sure that everyone kind of settles into their little piece of the internet. And back then, for me, it was Slashdot, Slashdot, Fark, and like Metafilter and Memepool. And uh, this was even before Dig. The people who ended up doing Reddit were in elementary school then. So like none of that even existed back then. It was just it was just a really, really different time. I, I listened to Hank and John Green talk about how back in the early days of YouTube, most of the YouTubers knew each other because it was easy to find one another. It was a smaller ecosystem and it was easier to, to, to stand out. It's so much harder now. There's just so much noise and so much competition. And the sense of the internet being a frontier where someone with a really great idea, but not a lot of money or a, a corporation behind them, the ability to kind of set out and do your own thing has, as far as I can tell, has become extremely difficult now. You're really reliant on someone else's infrastructure, whether it's TikTok TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, you're heavily reliant on someone else's web presence to make your creativity possible. And back then it was just, I just felt like I had a lot more in my own hands. And looking back at that through the lens of still just a geek, I'm very grateful for, for how much technology has advanced and how much my ability to reach out to and interact with people who are interested in my work and what I have to say, how that has just gotten so much easier over the years. Yeah, the landscape has, has changed. It's It feels... In some ways, it's easier to connect with people now, but it is so much more vast and so huge and so easy to get lost. And social media not being really social, it's almost like the opposite yeah. of it. It can feel kind of empty. So, and you still blog to this day, right? I mean, willwheaton.net still active. Matter of fact, I do. Yes. When you reflect on the acting, mm-hmm. now do you kind of look back and think about Stand By Me and you know the experience that you had there with, is it, is it more positive than it is? Negative or? Yeah, I loved Stand By Me. I had an incredibly wonderful time working on Stand By Me. It was beautiful. Rob Reiner was an amazing human being and a wonderful director. He was like a surrogate dad to all of us. He made, he was one of the very first adult, maybe the first adult in my life in a position of authority who made me feel worthy. I felt no worthiness in my home. Nothing I did was ever going to be good enough for the man who was my father. And the only thing that mattered to my mother was that I was famous and got a lot of attention. She didn't care how it happened and didn't care how I felt about it. And when Stand By Me happened, I wasn't really fully aware of that yet. I was only 12. I 
barely turned 13 when all of that went down. And it's interesting when I kind of reflect on it, I feel like, geez, I should have known more. I should have been more adult. I should have, should have, should have, should have. And then I kind of give myself a, a, a break and some empathy and realize I was 12 years old, expected to behave with the responsibilities and gravitas and professionalism of an adult. And I think Rob and most of the crew that I can remember from Stand By Me didn't make us feel that way. They made us feel like we were all working together on something special and wonderful. We were telling a really beautiful story and we were all showing up to do it together for each other. It was a, a wonderful experience. I'm so proud of it and so grateful for it. A lot of actors will spend their entire careers without anything approaching the longevity and the significance of Stand By Me to like kind of to a generation. And I'm incredibly lucky to have done that and, and to have built an entire career kind of standing on the shoulders of that, which is real different because for a long time, I felt like I was in its shadow and switching the thinking in my head from being in its shadow and in Star Trek shadow to standing on their shoulders kind of cleared the way for me to be the person I am today. That's so nice to hear. I Yeah, I mean, Stand By Me is such a special movie. Such a wonderful movie. I agree. Let me ask you a question. Some trivia I found on the movie. Tell me if it's Kiefer Sutherland would pick on you guys to stay in character. Never picked on me. I've heard that. Um, I've heard that that story. I, I have heard that story. I've heard that Jerry was terrified of him. And I don't remember him being unpleasant or threatening or scary or anything at all. I respected him. I felt like he was an adult and kind of a capital A actor. And I don't remember being intimidated or frightened at, at, at all. I felt like I was working with another actor who, who respected the work and who wanted to be the best character he could be. I actually kind of remember him being kind of sweet. Maybe that's just, I mean, that's obviously just me because like all the other kids are like, oh, I was scared to death of him. And I just, I don't remember that. I kind of, I, when I, when I read that, I, I took it more as like a method acting, how he was just trying to you know, stay in character and not really be. Well, mean, I mean, Kiefer, Kiefer was very well known back in those days for being very much a method actor. And he, I remember reading about this years later that he kind of like grabbed a character and kind of kept that character living within him. And that means something different for every actor, right? I think that a lot, a lot of times we hear method and we think this is a person who just imagines they're that character 24 seven while they're working on the project. And maybe some people do that, but my experience with him there was really not like that at all. He was great. Awesome. And then the other, the other piece that I stumbled on was your grandfather started in wagon train and your grandmother asked that wagon train somehow be worked into the dialogue. That is not correct. That is a mistake. Not my correct. grandfather, according to my mother, who is an unreliable narrator, according to my, my mother, my grandfather worked in the props department on wagon train. I presume, I mean, I don't know, there's like at least a 50% chance that's true, but I was at dinner my mom and I were at dinner with, I think, Rob. It was either Rob and Ray Gideon, who was one of the two writers, or it was my mom and me and Ray Gideon. And we were talking about that campfire sequence. And they were talking about things they discussed when they were kids that were things kids talked about. And the way I remember it, the wagon train thing came up. And I couldn't tell you, I don't remember if Ray was like, I'm thinking about this wagon train joke. And my mom was like, my dad worked on that. Or if my mom was like, my dad worked on that. And then Ray wrote the joke. I couldn't tell you which way it came up. The story is incorrect, although it is tangentially related to true events. <laughs> awesome. And then I read that your roommate in college was Chris Hardwick. That is true. 
That is cool. And then I was watching the first episode of the Will Wheaton Project. Yes. And there was a hilarious little routine that you guys did where Chris Hardwick came in and did a little skit. I uh, did a little thing with you uh, on that show. Yeah, it was the uh, we did. It was he was so Chris was was like uh, the Talking Dead franchise was was at its peak. And he came in and instead of doing an after show, he did a during show. That was really, really, really funny. I, I th- I'm pretty sure it's online somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was just watching. It was like, it comes down, he does uh, Talking, the Will Wheaton Project. And then yeah. he just, they replayed the clip from five seconds ago yeah. on the show. <laughs> yeah, it was very funny. That that was written by a guy named Doug Caro, who was the showrunner on Will Wheaton Project. I love Doug. He's real, real funny. And I was real lucky to get to work with him. I love the idea of that show. I, I always... I when I would watch Talk Soup and those kind of shows, which this is like the the nerd geek version of, I yeah. I was always like that would be the greatest job in the world. I kind <laughs> of thought that. that's what we were doing. I thought we were doing yeah. nerd soup, and I guess everyone except one particularly high ranking person at the Sci Fi Channel thought the same thing. And this one particularly high ranking person at the Sci Fi Channel, I think, didn't like me uh, just like as a person, and kind of threw up a lot of roadblocks for us. And I love the show that we made. And I think we did some really funny things and some really clever things. I got to meet Sonequa Martin-Green. She came in and did a beat for us long before she was part of Star Trek Discovery. And I think it's awesome. She came into my show when I was doing Will Wheaton Project. And now she comes into Ready Room, which is really fun. I love that show. And I wanted to do it forever and ever and ever. And ultimately, I was relieved when it was over because... I got to tell you, it's exhausting to fight with a network every day when a network's like, okay, we're going to make a show that looks like this. And you go, all right, let's do it. And you start making that show. And then the network comes at you at the 11th hour and tells you to get rid of all the stuff that they had just told you was cool to do. It was frustrating, but I worked with wonderful people on it. And as I write in Still Just a Geek, in five years, no one will even remember that that show ever existed. And I think that's an extremely important, uh, a really important piece of perspective to have on the things that we create. And I have been thinking a great deal about how we cannot focus ourselves on this must be successful. And then I must move to the next thing. And it must also be equally or more successful. Otherwise, the previous thing, now that success is not valid. And that's a, a way of thinking that I had embraced for my entire life. It was the way that I was raised. And it's it's defeating and it's toxic and it's, it's hurtful. And uh, I think that focusing, instead switching perspective to kind of focus on, I just want to do cool stuff and keep doing things that are sad satisfying and wonderful. And I want to work with good people and just keep doing them as long as people will let me do them without being attached to the result of that thing. And the longevity of the thing has allowed me to have a happier life and be a lot more comfortable where I am at this moment. Well, that, that's important to, to feel to feel that comfort. I think it will live on though. I mean, with YouTube and all that, everything seems to be able to be to exist forever now, right? <laughs> In like 30 years, some kid who isn't born yet is going to be on whatever the 30 years from now version of Reddit is and is going to be like, oh, man, look what I just found. Ten episodes of this series from the 2000s. <laughs> it'll be like it'll be like finding one of those old episodes of a talk show that you didn't even know existed in the 80s. Like Rick D's had a talk show. What? Well, first of all, as like the the president and of all geeks and nerds, I think it will because people will always want to kind of dig into Will Wheaton. I think that's that's just going to be part of of your legacy. There'll be great pieces of things that, you know, 
are just out there. I hope they will enjoy our jokes and I really hope they will enjoy my favorite bit I've ever done in the history of my career, which is Skeletor reads mean tweets and we fight about it. Absolutely my favorite bit I have ever <laughs> done in my life. I would do an entire series that's just me talking to Skeletor just like debating, you know, philosophies and things. I think it would be one of the funniest things. I will be upset if you don't make that happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you mentioned the ready room, which is yeah. kind of now like the Star Trek version of the Will Wheaton project. Yes. Right? Uh, I introduce like, each show by saying uh, it is your official online hub for all things Star Trek universe. I love it. So how does it feel to kind of be the MC, the ushering in all the new episodes of everything? I mean, cause Star Trek is like, it's everywhere again. I mean, there's so many that series happening and I love it. I'm so grateful for it. It's my favorite job I've ever had. I get to watch Star Trek months before anybody else does. And then I get to apply my experience as a member of legacy Star Trek with my experience as a lifelong Star Trek fan and write questions and commentary that hopefully bring those two things together in a unique way. And it is my goal to bring my fellow nerds into the room where it happens and talk a lot about process and talk a lot about the philosophy of Star Trek and what goes into the technical experience of creating these things. It's fascinating to me. I think it's very easy for these shows to just kind of almost become like they get real close to fan fiction and fan service if they're not done well. I think that it's real easy for it to lose its objectivity and just kind of become promotion. And, you know, in, in, a, in a really meaningful, really important way, these shows are all, all of our after shows are all about the promotion of kind of the main dramatic or show or whatever that we're watching. But what I hope makes Ready Room special is it is the result of me spending all but 13 years of my life as part of Star Trek. And I hope that that brings a perspective to it that is enduring and uh, and remains as interesting to the audience as it is fun for me to explore. I also love meeting these actors, you know, like when I get to sit down and talk to anyone from the cast of Star Trek Discovery or Strange New Worlds or, or any of them. I'm a massive fan of the show, but I have to keep reminding myself I am their ancestor as it goes to Star Trek. And when I talk to the young people, especially Blue and Ian from uh, from Discovery, I get to talk to two young people who also know what it's like to be 18, 19 and on Star Trek. And there's not a lot of other people in this world who I can share that experience with. And if I can be for them a person who didn't exist for me when I was them, I will seize that opportunity. And hosting Ready Room gives me an opportunity to know them and, and kind of be part of them. And it's weird, man. I turned 50 in July and I'm really like one of the Star Trek, one of Star Trek's old men. I'm I'm one of the the you know, one of the legacy Star Trek people. Uh that's real weird. There's only one Star Trek series that is older than mine. That is also very weird. I will always feel like I am a teenager when it comes to Star Trek. That, in addition to all of this other weird stuff, continues to be incredibly weird. But it's really fun. As we've done them for a couple of years now. The control room and I have really found a magnificent rhythm that we're all just in and we hand stuff off and pass things back and forth. I kind of feel like maybe word has gone around the sets that Ready Room's fun, that it's a positive, nurturing, celebratory environment. 
hosted by somebody who loves this as much as as the actors do. And I feel like there's always been a level of availability from the, the actors going all the way back to when we started this for Picard. But I am feeling an enthusiasm that maybe wasn't there at the very beginning that I really love. Well, I can't even imagine someone else hosting this show. So they must feel... I watched the episode with uh, John Delancey, and I'm, I'm excited to kind of dive into some more of them. But it was it was great for any, I think, almost any level of Star Trek fan because you kind of welcome it and you give just enough information on the characters or backstories to kind yeah. of make people feel welcome into this into this universe. But I mean, as a light, I know you're a lifelong fan of Star Trek. And as you mentioned, Legacy, can't believe when you say it out loud, 14-year-old Wesley Crusher is 50 years I, old. But I, they <laughs> Imagine how it makes me feel. Imagine how it makes my cast feel. But it gives you that that rare opportunity to, to be Legacy, and you're going to be around for a while. And uh, you can uh, usher in uh, many decades of Star Trek in the future as well. So that's that's pretty cool. That's, that's really awesome. So that's a great thing that you got going on. You mentioned Rick Dees in passing earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Part of what I, when I'm digging in, I'm, I'm going through the web. I found three talk show appearances that you did talk about things living forever, right? Yeah. These are from 2010. So this was into the night with Rick Dees, 2010. This was you coming on kind of, uh, breaking it to the world that you were going to transition out of, uh, Star Trek, the next generation. And then, and then you were on Arsenio Hall. I saw that and you taught him the word stoked. <laughs> That would have been about 87 or 88. Rick Dees would have been about 1990, I think. Oh, was it? Get, oh, maybe it was. It, was when, up, yeah, it would have been, uh, could have been uploaded in 2010, but uh, that, yeah, that yeah, happened yeah. when I was in my teens. My dating doesn't make sense. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was just, it was just funny. But the, the best one that I found was Our Magazine with Gary Collins. Oh my gosh. So you had just done Young Harry Houdini. Yeah, I love that movie. You did a card trick on the show. Uh-huh. But what was hilarious about this hour magazine was like coming up, stand by me's Will Wheaton. And then then they talk about the other things on the show. Yeah. Man sexuality after 40, okay. LA Laws, uh, Susan Rulan, saucy secretary, and woman of the hour, Barbara Eden. Very, very attractive woman. And I was just like, it's so funny. Cause like they some of those things they just would never say now it's odd to me that barbara eden is it's not odd it's offensive that barbara eden is reduced to very attractive woman rather than lifelong brilliant comedic performer who carried an entire iconic series for its full run like exactly exactly larry hagman had a career because of barbara eden like maybe she's a bit more than that our magazine did you find these like could i track these down and watch them or did you just find descriptions no i found them i'll try and find them again and i'll uh oh my god uh yeah i would love that so the other thing that was cringeworthy was gary collins saying to you hey will i hear you like older women and then almost implying like he was trying to pass barbara eden off on you Oh, listen, I appreciate Gary Collins trying to like do me a solid and wingman me up with Barbara Eden, but maybe there was an age discrepancy that was that was a little inappropriate. It just it's just such a snapshot in time that would not fly now. It was just yeah. so funny. It was just so funny. Talk to me about your relationship with Gene Roddenberry. I didn't know Gene really well, but my relationship with him was extremely positive. It was lovely. He made me feel special all the time. He always made me feel like he valued what I had to say and that he listened to me. And that was something I was really unaccustomed to in my home and something I was really unaccustomed to just kind of in life in general. 
Um, but I especially felt it at home. I especially felt unheard and unseen in my home. And Jean was one of those rare adults who really made me feel worthy and like he was glad that I was there. I read that you were one of his favorite actors, but also favorite characters that Wesley Crusher was absolutely one of his favorite characters. So the story that I have heard, and I think that most of this is true. I don't know how much of it is apocryphal. So take it at, you know, I would just say, take this at face value. The story goes that Gene wanted a young character on, on his new Star Trek show who was smart, who was capable, who was wise, a little bit beyond his years, who could bring kids into Star Trek the way like Will Robinson brought kids into out, uh, Lost in Space, but without it being a kid's show. He wanted a kid who could talk to other kids and meet them where they were at in their lives. The first few seasons, first two, first season especially, and the first two seasons, I think the writers largely didn't accomplish that. I think they just didn't know what to do. I think a couple of them were kind of stuck in that kind of lost in space style writing idea and couldn't see him really outside of those confines. I do remember once I was at a con and some fans egged on by somebody who worked on the show really were giving Gene a, a really hard time about Wesley specifically. And I was in the audience watching him and I'd never seen Gene get mad. And I remember Gene getting mad and Gene saying, I created this show because I wanted to make the show I wanted to see. And I wanted a smart kid on my show. And there are smart kids in the future. And if you have a problem with it, tough. This is how it's going to be. And the way I recall it, it kind of shocked the room into silence. And it was like, dad's mad at us. And we should be quiet now. And I didn't feel like he was standing up for me. I felt like he was just saying, look, man, this is my art. This is my story. This is my creation. And this is what I want it to be. All of that said, Wesley was little more than an idea for the first couple of years of Star Trek The Next Generation. And he never really got to where I think he would get if he existed today for a ton of reasons. A lot of them I, I, I talk about in, in Still Just a Geek and, and I've written about him a lot in, you know, just on, on my website in general. But I know that Wesley, uh, I know that Gene loved him. He named him after himself. Gene's middle name is Wesley. And he was protective of him and he was protective of me. He made me feel looked after, which I really cared, uh, which I really valued um, and made me feel cared for. That's awesome. Why, why do you think there was friction with, uh, you know, like with the fans, with your character when you reflect on it? He was poorly written. He was he was he was appallingly badly written. Uh, I've talked about this for years because as I as you can imagine, I have been asked this a lot in the last several years of my life. Uh, and by years, I mean decades. Wesley never really got past being an idea. He was real smart and uh, and he was kind of like, and he was so smart that he was real insightful and saw things. And the writers would have someone like Picard give Wesley a task or have Riker give Wesley a task. And Wesley goes and completes the task. And as he's attempting to complete the task, he's running into adults who don't listen to him. He's running into adults who don't respect him. He's, he's overcome and he overcomes all of that. And he comes back to Riker or Picard and he's like, yo, I did the thing you wanted me to do. And it contradicts your pr presumption about the solution to the problem. So alter course at which point Riker or Picard goes, well, we're not listening to you now. You don't know what you're talking about. And then 
a few acts later, they come back and go, oh, Wesley, you were right all along. And the audience gets enraged. The audience doesn't want their captain and first officer to be outsmarted by the 14-year-old. That's terrible writing. You can get away with it one time, maybe one time. And the one time it actually works is in the episode Final Mission, uh, which I think is my best work in the entirety of Next Generation, where Wesley and Picard crash land on a planet in a shuttlecraft with a weird dude who ends up dying, and Wesley's got to like break into a fountain to save Picard's life. And that is the one time where, yeah, rise to the occasion, kid. Let's see what you can do, and you can pull all this stuff off, and it's great. Had they done that a little more consistently, I think he would have been a more popular character with adults. I will tell you that I have learned over the last 20 or so years that people who are my age loved him from day one and never disliked him. It was the 20-somethings in 1987 who hated him. Uh, It wasn't the teenagers. So it was people who were, one, outside the demo. So they were predisposed. You know, he wasn't for them. But also he was very poorly written. And by the time he was well-written, I was out. Got it. I, I think one one aspect that shines a light on how well the character was loved was how they incorporated into the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. And Sheldon's feeling of that of the Will Wheaton of the uh Wesley Crusher character and how yeah. it kind of manifests into uh evil Will Wheaton, if you will. I have had the privilege of meeting so many real life Sheldons of every gender identity who love Wesley for the same reasons. Sheldon loves Wesley. They feel very, they felt very seen by him. Uh, They related to adults saying, hey, you're smart, go do this. And then those very same adults being mad at the kid for doing it, right? (laughs) Just hear that all the time. It was incredibly fun to play evil Will Wheaton for, for, for the first few years on The Big Bang Theory. And I was initially kind of bummed when the writers and the showrunner altered the course of the character to make him more of a friend than an adversary. And uh, I was bummed. I thought that meant that I wasn't going to get to be on the show very much anymore. And I was wrong. It just changed it. And it let that their version of me exist in their universe. What a gift that was. You know, it was. I think a lot of people probably rediscovered you that way, right? <laughs> and it was so well done. I mean, I, I went and I rewatched the scene when you guys are playing the, the, the table game, the competition at the comic book store again. Mystic Warlords of Ka'a. Yes. <laughs> and uh, just that whole exchange, the way you dupe Sheldon uh, to win in the yeah. end with the story about your grandma. I mean, it's some of the best Big Bang theory, I think. Jim's physical comedy is he does his impression of Shatner's rage explosion in Wrath of Khan is so funny and it kills me every single time. So funny. So yeah. funny. And, uh, I, and then as I was kind of digging into the clips just to kind of rewatch some of the highlights again. I was reminded of the the Wesley Crushers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such a funny, that whole scene where he's trying to explain to them how you say yeah. it. it so funny. That scene was originally almost a full page. It just kept going. And it, it was, it got funnier every time I saw it. And eventually they were like, it's too long. We can do the same thing with like three lines. It doesn't have to be the full page. They went through a lot of different reads on that. And it was just hilarious every single time. And then you walk in and go, oh, they named their, their team after me. Yeah. <laughs> I have a couple of Wesley Crusher's bowling shirts that have been given to me over the years by people. I very rarely break them out, but I cherish them. Oh, yeah, that's that's so, so cool. So oh, I was talking to the writer of the first few uh, Sharknado movies, and we, we talked about you. Yeah. And I was like, uh, that 
the tie-in with that we were when you were doing the cameo in Sharknado two. Yes. And then and then it gets mentioned on the Big Bang Theory. You kind of yeah kinda tied those together. That was that was pretty. I did that in Sharknado two because David Latt, who is the founder of the Asylum, the film company that makes all those magnificently just awful sci-fi monster movies. David wrote and directed a fantastic indie comedy called Jane White is Sick and Twisted in the early 2000s. And I co-starred in it with an actor named Kim Little, who is David's wife. And we just did this great, weird little movie. We got some wonderful recognition from some international independent film festivals. And we stayed friends years and years and years after that happened. So when Sharknado came out, I remember my wife and I saw the the promos for it and we were like, wait, it's a tornado full of sharks. How are we not watching this? And uh, and we had a huge party with all of our friends. So when we found out there was a sequel, I emailed Lat and I was and I was just like, dude, could I please just get killed by a shark in Sharknado 2? And within minutes, he was like, absolutely, we'll find a place for you. That's awesome. Yeah, that opening scene was great. And it's just, I know you're not on Twitter anymore, but it's interesting because you were one of the people that was tweeting with yeah. the original Sharknado. Yeah. And as history looks back on that initial launch of that movie, the celebrities, yourself included, were part of that, let's call it NATO, that actually launched that and gave it so much attention that it did have a, a second showing and a yeah. third showing and kept topping itself and then led to that, you know, five other movies. That was fun. That was before Twitter became all about like empowering bullies and spreading fascism. Back then it was still fun when we could just use it to sort of globally enjoy the ridiculousness of of, of that kind of, of movie. It was just, you know, I mean, I, I I think that like that all of those films they just land on those of us that grew up watching Elvira and and Mystery Science Theater like it's just they're just perfect they're just such beautiful love letters to all of that ridiculousness and yeah it's interesting I I, I feel like it only could have happened at that moment Sharknado being what it was Twitter being what it was all of that it had to happen at exactly that moment it could not have happened at a different time I don't you probably can't see over my shoulder but I have a Sharknado poster. Eight by ten on the wall. I am staring a Tara Reid signed. <laughs> Amazing! That's fantastic. I was upset. I was. I love the, that whole series. Awesome. So one of the reasons, but getting back to Gene Roddenberry for a second, mm -hmm. one of the stories in your book that I actually had found the same story online, mm -hmm. uh, William Fucking Shatner, <laughs> that you did. It was like a. It was like a twenty-three minute video with you and Paul and Storm. Yes. Probably at Wootstock or else at a show called Will Wheaton versus Paul and Storm. We did that a lot a few years ago. I, as a, as I, I was catching up in the book, I realized this whole, it's all written out in the book as well. There's a whole chapter on it. I got to say, like, it is really nice listening to you perform and tell stories. You are oh, you're an amazing. You. Oh, you're welcome. You're, you're an amazing storyteller. As a matter of fact, when I got to, when I was reading the book and it got to a part where it talked about it, it was a Mensa speech that you gave. Yes. I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm going to go search this. I want to hear him say it. Uh, thanks, man. <laughs> so I found it and I made a note that in the book you left out the uh, a hula hoop line, which I thought was funny. Oh, that's probably a line that I improvised during the speech that wasn't in the text. That happens. That happens an awful lot. I always publish the texts of my speech, the original texts of my speeches with a note that says this is intended to be delivered orally in front of a room and however the actual performance goes will be different because that's just how it is every single time. 
I'll have to dig it up and see if I can find that. I, I'll try and find some of these because uh, I, I have some of the URLs that I collected as I was kind of digging in on my Will Wheaton research. I, I've been I've been tr- killing myself because I've been trying to say Will Will Wheaton. I can't say like Stewie does it. That was the funniest Family Guy where the the, the Next Generation cast reunion and the way he says your name with a with an H. When I got the email about that, every now and then I get asked to do really really special things and. I, I, I say yes, like nine out of 10 times. And maybe half the time, the thing I said yes to actually makes it into the final thing. That's just filmmaking. That's just the, you know, it's nothing personal. With that one, there were, there's so much more story of like Stewie's day out with the next gen cast that had to get cut for time. But I knew that that would make it because it's a callback to their cool whip thing. And Family Guy's all about callbacks. So uh, people still come up to me and quote it all the time. And I will always say to them, why are you saying it that way? <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, it's always great. Like when people go on family guy and can kind of, uh, laugh at themselves, like the whole cast, Patrick Stewart, all of them. Like it was just, it was just so funny. But the reason I brought up the William fucking Shatner story was as kind of a bow to the Gene Roddenberry thing. I won't give away the story cause people can read it and, and go to the, get the book. It's a great, great story, but it was just, it was wonderful how he made, uh, Shatner, uh, mea culpa to you. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it really meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to me, however that happened. And I don't know, I I will never know exactly how all of that went down. The ultimate thing that is really important is that somebody I respected and looked up to really hurt me. And a different person who I respected and looked up to loved me and looked out for me and looked after me and stood up for me. And this comes up over and over again in, in the book in a lot of different places. I did not have people standing up for me in my life. I had people who were exploiting me and wringing every last piece of everything out of me that they could possibly get with absolutely no regard for how it affected me as a person. And that was a very significant moment where I really, I really felt loved and protected, not just by Gene, by everyone in my cast. Yeah, all of them came to Brent Spiner. All of of them kind of came and really had your back on that. Yeah, they really did. It was wonderful. Yeah, sometimes you can't meet your heroes, right? (laughs) I will say that that thing with Bill, it is, I am willing to allow for the possibility that it was a series of what he thought were jokes that didn't land. It's distinctly possible that that kind of happened that way. And as I write in the book and as is like easily available public information, he's been really great to me ever since then. We had an incredibly fun time when we worked together on the Big Bang Theory. The thing about Bill is that he can be a lovely, gentle, very funny, very wickedly funny person. And he can also just be an absolute shit. And you just kind of never know who's going to show up. And sometimes both guys show up. And you just never know who's going to be there. When we worked together on Big Bang Theory, we were really, really lucky that super awesome, kind, friendly William Shatner showed up. I am going to tell you a very brief story about that day um, that I believe you will enjoy. So we're all sitting at the table, right? And it's all these really fancy people. And everybody at that table is impressed by someone else at that table. And I will just remind for your listeners who's there. Joe Manganiello... Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, William Shatner, me, right? What? It's bizarre. Kevin Smith is there? Like, it's ridiculous. It's just this, I can't believe it. So I asked Bill Prady, 
who did you want? Who was your dream get for that group? And he said, the people who said yes. Like that was my first ask and everybody said yes right away. And it's like, oh my God, that's amazing. So there is a line in that scene where Shatner says, don't make me go all Wrath of Khan on your ass. In rehearsal, Shatner is saying Wrath of Khan, not Wrath, Wrath. So imagine R-O-T-H, hear that in your head when I say it, okay? I'm not going to go all Wrath of Khan. The director comes over, hey, uh, Bill, we're hearing Wrath. Can you just, it's, we, we're pretty sure it's Wrath. Okay, great. That line comes around again, Wrath of Khan. Now, there is a story that, based on you laughing, I'm sure you know. There is an outtake of Shatner in ADR recording from the 60s, where the guy says to him in the voiceover booth, says, uh, 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 action. And Shatner says, uh, well, this is a clear case of sabotage. And the guy says, uh, it's, uh, it's actually, Bill, it's sabotage. And Shatner goes, well, maybe you say sabotage. I say sabotage. And he will not change the pronunciation. So, on the set, he's saying Roth. I know the sabotage story. Bill Prady knows the sabotage story. Steve Malau, Mark Sandrowski, all the writers. We all know the sabotage story. And I'm watching all of them talk to each other. Who's going to go up to Bill Shatner, who's doing sabotage, and tell him it's sabotage? Who's going to do that? And you can see that none of them want to do it. They're all trying. These are all fully grown men. And they're all like, I don't want to go do it. I don't, and I'm just sitting on the set. I am the only person on stage 25 who knows exactly what's going on. And I'm dying inside. I'm trying so hard to hold it together because he just, it's like four times of someone gently coming to Shatner and trying to nudge him into saying sabotage. Finally, Bill Prady comes over and he says, Bill, I'm pretty sure it's sabotage and I'm hearing sabotage or not sabotage. I'm pretty sure it's, it's, it's wrath and I'm hearing wrath. And Shatner goes, really? And Prady says, yeah, I, I feel like you're saying wrath and we're just, we're really sure it's wrath. And Shatner goes, huh? Well, all right. The next take, Wrath of Khan. He says it perfectly. To this day, I do not know if Shatner was like doing a move to see what he could get away with or if he genuinely didn't hear it or understand it. But it remains one of my like top five Big Bang Theory moments of sitting there watching my friends from the writing staff and that part of production absolutely running around with their hair on fire trying to figure out who is going to be the person to tell Shatner he's saying it wrong? That is amazing. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, man. I think in the book you also talk about you kind of you rebonded, you reconnected on The Weakest Link when you guys did the Star Trek thing there. Yeah, and that actually happened years before Big Bang Theory. I mean, like 10 or 15 years before Big Bang Theory. Talk to me about Tabletop. You know, as I was watching it, I think on Larry King, you mentioned it was your friends that created Cards Against Humanity, which I thought was uh -huh. pretty cool. You ever play Axis and Allies? Yeah, of course. Okay, so when I was discovering Tabletop, my friends and I, we would play in high school. We would do Axis and Allies, and we would, and it just, I'd start having just some flashbacks to that. We'd spend nine-hour days, you know, we'd, eat, we'd have like saltines, and we just slab butter on it, and we would play Axis and Allies, and the funny thing is, to this day, my friends' name are Howard Rosner and Jeff Zonder. I'm saying it out loud on purpose so that they get annoyed when they hear this back. <laughs> there was one day, the, the way Axis and Allies works, right? You're, we would split up. So three of us, I think it was two would be the... I'm thinking, I can't remember if I was the Axis or the Allies. I can't remember. But somehow, now, this normal eight to 10 hour game that I would have to explain to my parents and girlfriend why we're doing this for this long. I somehow rolled dice like 
haven't intervened, I win in 90 minutes. I completely wipe them out. That's insane. Insane, right? That's crazy. That's like go to a casino, man. I know. But to this day, if Axis and Allies comes up, I kind of give them a look and they go, we know 90 minutes. <laughs> oh, man. I think tabletop games are are amazing. And that's what I thought the, the whole show and people should kind of check out all those episodes. Thank you. I loved it because you brought it up uh, a couple of things about it. I want to give enormous credit to a group of amazing women who made tabletop possible. This tabletop would not exist without Felicia Day, Kim Evie, Sherry Bryant, and Jen Arnold. They were amazing. Nearly every good idea that went into shaping the direction of tabletop and kind of the tone and the language of it was developed in meetings with them. And uh, and, and the show would not exist and would not have been successful and as long lived as it was without all of their participation. I really miss it. I'm really sad that it is over. I will not ever work for legendary digital entertainment if I can help it. And that means tabletop and anything that I did with Geek and Sundry is probably never going to happen again. But I have not completely eliminated the possibility that some point in my future, I might do something that is similar yet legally distinctly different from tabletop. Maybe something where uh, I get together with a couple of friends and we play a board game together and uh, and we talk about it in some way that is legally distinctly different from tabletop because it was really fun. And I'm proud of what we did. I'm grateful for what we did. We have left a very clear legacy in the gaming industry that I'm incredibly proud of. I, I love the people who who picked up kind of the ball when we put it down and have continued to, to move it toward a world where everybody plays games. And board gaming is a in, an incredibly meaningful hobby to so many people. Welcome to Games on a Table with Will Wheaton. Uh-huh. There we go. There we go. I just worked around all the legals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the working title is not tabletop. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry is a family favorite. Yeah, that's the one game that my wife and I can play all the time because it's one of the very few games where there's enough luck involved that my um, min-maxing and uh, uh, extreme gamer gamerness doesn't wreck our ability to have fun together because you just kind of have to count on what happens with the, with the, with the cards. Oh, really? Because in our family, when we have all four, my wife and my two daughters, and we play, it can get cutthroat. And it'd be like, you can't, no, no, you got me last time. And it was like, it, it causes a complete breakdown in the family units. But <laughs> but I love it. We have an old school game from like when I was a kid, the board. Yeah. So when you roll, you know exactly where eight is and seven is and 12. And it's awesome. So I, I know, I, I can't believe that the time's just kind of flying by. I, I do want to say that one one of the things that, kind of really touched me when I was reading the book. I was reading the part about where you talk about your chronic depression and your and the panic attacks and and dealing with that. And and it's an amazing message about not being ashamed of of having uh, any form of, of mental illness. But there was one particular thing that you said in the book that kind of really struck me. It was as do something for future you. Yeah. And I got to say, it was it was funny. I know this is Meaning, you know, this isn't like the biggest thing in the world, but I was just like, I had put up so I put I had put off so much yeah. <laughs> that day while I was just kind of digging into the book and stuff. And it says future you. And I looked at the time and I realized I got to I got to go take care of myself for a minute, yeah. go work out, go do all these things. But it's a really great mantra just to have like when you're kind of thinking about, you know, there's so many times in your life where you can kind of say, I'm not going to do it. 
but it was like, think about like how future you is going to think and, and thank you for it. I, it was just, it just, it, it was an interesting way to think. It's kind of a way to trick ourselves into loving ourselves. It's a way to trick ourselves into doing kind things for ourselves. Like, you know how there is a person in this world who you love more than anybody in the world, and you would never say an unkind thing to that person no matter what. And you might even like get in between that person and another person who's being unkind to them. You should treat yourself exactly the same way that you would treat the person you love most in the world, because you can't love another person until you love yourself. And when you do kind things for yourself, you're really taking care of yourself. You're just practicing self-care. And it, you know, it can go in all these different directions. For me, it comes up on Wednesdays because the Wednesdays when the damn trash cans have to go out and I fucking hate it. And there will be several times during the day on Wednesday where I'll just look at Anne and go, oh, it's fucking Wednesday. And what I've started doing now is the first time I do that, I trudge out to the yard and I do the whole thing myself and, and, I, and I finish it all and then spend the rest of the day starting to think, oh, it's wet. Oh, no, it's not. I already did it. Thank you, me, from a few hours ago. There was also a day recently at, with the book coming out, I needed to sign a whole bunch of hundreds of book plates to go off to England because uh, it's just not possible to do international travel for us right now and travel and, and signings and things like that. So I had worked it out so I could do like 10 a day. I was going to sit down for like two minutes and just go blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, and it's anyway, I ended up signing all of them at once in a multi-hour marathon. And I said to Anne more than once, Boy, I tell you what, me from the past has accumulated a significant debt that me from this moment is paying off. And like, I accept it. I know that you, that me from the past had other things to do, but like, I'm not doing this to future me the way past me did it to current me, <laughs> which I know creates a lot of time as a flat circle weirdness and Spider-Man pointing at each other memes in people's heads. But if you stop to think about it and visualize it, it actually, the math does work out. Oh, it, it totally does. There's always those times where you do something and you realize, oh, I did it. And when the anxiety of having to do it and you realize it's already done, there's no greater feeling than that, actually. Yeah. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. This was so much fun. I, uh, I really, really, really appreciate it. Let's plug the book one more time. All right. It's called Still Just a Geek, an annotated memoir. It drops April 12th. It is available in print, ebook, and audio. I will tell you this about the audio version. Uh, there is additional material in the audio version that I remembered things during the narration of it. And I would have comments about things that I did not remember when I did the writing of Still Just a Geek. So there's a few additional little pieces in there. And uh, if you want to hear just, if you really want to hear my voice and my words, that's the way to do it. Uh, but it's available um, in every format you can imagine in every place that you can possibly get books. I've worked real hard to make sure that it is available in libraries everywhere. Someone will always say, where do you, where do you want me to get it? And the answer is, I want you to get it where it's easiest and most convenient for you. Cause ultimately I just want you to share the experience of reading it. I would like the opportunity to take up an awful lot of your time. And if that's still not a good enough answer, uh, I would love for you to get it from an indie shop because indie bookshops always, always, always need our support. No matter matter what. Absolutely. And I do encourage everyone to get the heart, uh, you know, the, the tangible version of the book. I think that's something so missing from the world is, is just nothing like holding a good book, but also 
the audio version, you saying your own words. I, I've heard you say, do, do that a lot. And that would be a, an extra special experience. I, I do want to say one, one last thing that I've, I totally forgot. So a lot of times if I, I don't always tell my friends when I'm about to meet somebody, because one, you know, if it gets canceled, I just never want to put it yeah. out in the universe. So I told my friend Tom Frawley, I said, I'm talking to Will Wheaton. Now, normally when I tell people something like that, the normal response would be, hey, I'm talking to Will Wheaton. If you have any questions, you let me know. And yeah. five days later, they'll come back with, ask him what it was like to be on Star Trek. I'm yeah. like, oh, thank you. I didn't think to cover Star Trek with Will Wheaton. Nice to thank have you. a staff, isn't it? <laughs> this is what he said. He, he was talking about how you did the audio for the book, Ready Player One. Yeah. And he, he, he said it was excellent. He says, and I assume it was quite the meta moment, given that Will Wheaton is actually discussed in the book. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, I knew it was coming up and I was getting excited for it. And when it, when that moment actually happened, I have to, I'm professional and my job is to just keep going. You know, I'm Wade in that moment. I'm not Will, but it was really fun. And, and what an honor to be, to be mentioned in the same breath as Cory Doctorow, who is a person who I just endlessly respect and admire. So cool. So cool. Well, thank you once again. This was, was such an honor. Thank you again. This was this was awesome. Yeah, awesome. I enjoyed it. Nice talking with you. Nice talking with you too. All right. How great was Will Wheaton, everyone? As soon as you're done here, I want you to run out, pre-order or order Will's book, Still Just a Geek. Super awesome. If you love Will Wheaton, you're going to love his book. Available April 12th. Well, with the interview over can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Follow us on Twitter at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free Hashtag Roundup app. Always free. Doesn't cost a penny. Head on over to the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store. Download it. Receive a notification every time a new game starts. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit. The Jeff Duoskin Show, fame and fortune await you. Today's hashtag, of course, inspired by my conversation with Will Wheaton and his time as Wesley Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation, comes the ultimate Star Trek The Next Generation mashup hashtag, hashtag Star Trek TNG songs. Brought to us by our friends at Friday Fondue, a weekly game on Hashtag Roundup. Hashtag Star Trek TNG songs, Star Trek The Next Generation songs, the ultimate Star Trek The Next Generation show song mashup. Friday Fondue went to Twitter, challenged them to mash up those two genres, and hilarity ensued. So get ready for some hashtag Star Trek TNG songs. Worf it. Worf it real good. Number one is the loneliest number. You have to excuse my singing. Worf me up before you go, go. <laughs> I do not apologize for my singing. I take it back. Wesley's mom has got it going on. Yar of the cat. Everything I do, I do it for cue. These are some amazing hashtag Star Trek TNG songs. The ultimate Star Trek song mashup game. Here's some more. I want a Deanna with somebody. Be honest. Who thought I had recruited Whitney there for a second? Jordy's a jolly good fellow. Jordy's a jolly good fellow. Make it so. What? 
When you wish upon a stargazer, comfortably number one, since you've been Klingon, I can breathe for the first time since you've been Klingon. Okay, maybe I do apologize. You know it's Picard out here for a pimp. These are amazing hashtag Star Trek TNG songs. Seven of nine to five, working. Seven of nine to five, what a way to make a living. Oh, well, a borg, borg, borg. The borg is a word. Burg, burg, burg. Borg is a word. A borg, borg, borg. <laughs> Breaking up is Picard to do. Sitting on the hollow deck of the bay. Whoopie. Whoopie real good. Make it su su studio. <laughs> and our final hashtag Star Trek TNG songs tweet. Crusher pushing down on me. Pressing down on you. Under crusher. All right. <laughs> Had to end with a Wesley one. All right. There you go. There's your hashtag Star Trek TNG songs. Tweet your own. Tag me at Jeff Dewaskin Show on Twitter. I'll show you some Twitter love. As always, all of those fabulous Star Trek The Next Generation song mashup tweets are retweeted at Jeff Dewaskin Show on Twitter. Go show them some love. Well... With the hashtag game over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 120 has come to an end. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Special thanks again to my guest, Will Wheaton. Everyone go out and buy his book, Still Just a Geek, an annotated memoir. It is spectacular. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me, and I'll see you next time. Oh, one last thing. The bark, bark, bark. The bark is word. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>